Gracious Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have spoken clearly. And we pray that as we come around your word, that you would help us, help us to understand your truth, help us to respond to your word with soft hearts, with hearts that are quick and willing to do your will. So Father, we pray that you would illumine our hearts now. And we pray that you would bless us as we come and hear your word once more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We typically associate seeking God's will with significant life events. I think that's how we normally think about God's will, right? We, uh, for example, we, we, have a, we face a life choice. You know, maybe it's something to do with where we live, where we go to school, which job or business opportunity should we take up, or perhaps it's a, it's a, it's a marriage choice. You know, whom should I marry? Or how should I spend my time? How should I spend my retirement? We, we have all these questions. And then we seek the Lord's will as we think about all these different questions. Now, these are all important questions. And it is right that we seek God's wisdom and guidance. But I wonder, for, for all of us, as we seek the Lord's will, do we see the bigger picture of what God is doing in the world? Do, do we actually know His will in, in, a, in a big sense as we seek our place in, in that big will of God. So let me suggest uh, maybe a better way of seeking God's will. You know, normally we start with this question, right? You know, should I be doing this or that? You know, that's normally the first question we ask when we seek God's will. Uh, can I suggest that instead of asking that as the first question, our first question should be, God, what are you doing in the world? That should be our first question. God, what are you doing in the world? Help me to see how my life can fit into your purpose and plan. Not the other way around. To paraphrase John F. Kennedy, ask not how God can fit into your life plans, but ask God how you can use your life for his plans. Now, the Bible reveals a big story of what God is doing in the world. Now, this big story, uh, you know, if you want a fancy word, it's called a meta-narrative. This big story it has four main chapters, four main uh, acts, if you will. Uh, creation, fall, redemption, and new creation. You know, that, that's the big story of what God is doing in the world. Uh, if you really want a, if you want a good book to, to kind of read more about this, the, the, big, the big, I think it's called the Big Picture Story Bible or the Jesus Storybook Bible. These are really good resources for kids as well, by the way. These are good, good, good kind of resources to help us see the big story of what God is doing in the world. So this, this story has four acts, you know, creation, fall, redemption, new creation. And our sermon text for today, Acts 10, uh, as uh, Helen just read for us, this, this chapter focuses on what God is doing in redemption to, to accomplish His plan of redemption. And God does this to move that big story from creation to new creation. That, that's the will of God. And, and our lives only make sense if we see how our lives fit within this bigger story of what God is doing in the world. That's how our lives actually make sense. When we see how our lives fit within this big story from creation to new creation. Now this chapter is, is a major turning point in the book of Acts. For the first time in Acts, the, the gospel goes out directly to Gentiles, non-Jews. Uh, we, I think most of us, if not all of us here, are Gentiles. So this is really our story. So as we, as we read Acts 10, you know, we mustn't think that this is a story about people long ago, nothing to do with us. No, actually this is our story. Because it's the story of how the gospel begins to go out to people like us, Gentiles, non-Jews. And this is a hugely important event you know, in that big story, creation to new creation. The account of this event is the longest narrative in the book of Acts. You know, these 48 verses are the longest, narr- longest continuous narrative in the whole book of Acts, which, which tells us that Luke, as he records this event, Luke views this event very, very importantly in that story of Acts. In fact, it's so important that Luke repeats this account again in chapter 11. And then he references it again in chapter 15. You know, if you want to say, if, if you want to say something's important, you say it three times, right? That's exactly what Luke does. 
the book of Acts. And in Acts so far, the, the, the gospel has gone out from Jerusalem, it's gone to Judea, it's gone to Samaria, not quite to the ends of the earth just yet. But from chapter 10 onwards, the gospel will begin to go out in all directions and fan out to peoples in different places towards the end of the earth. The question is, how does God bring this about? How does God bring about this new development in the life of the church? How does God bring about this new development in that big story from creation to new creation? Let's begin with point one. Two God-given visions. Our story begins with Cornelius, and the text tells us that, that he's a Roman soldier, a centurion. A centurion is a soldier with, who's in charge of a uh, hundred men, thereabouts. And the text goes on to say that Cornelius is a devout man. Uh, they, they call him someone who, who fears God. He's a God-fearer. What does it mean to be a God-fearer? You know, it doesn't mean that Cornelius was already saved. Otherwise, why would he have to need to hear the gospel from Peter? So he, he, he's, not, he's not converted per se, but in the New Testament times, God-fearers were Gentiles who believed the Jewish religion. Uh, they were not full converts to Judaism, but, but they were sympathetic to the Jewish faith. They attended the synagogue regularly. They, some of them even practiced certain Jewish religious practices, like Cornelius does. He, give, he gives alms and he prays at the set Jewish times. So he was a he, he, was a, he was sympathetic to the Jewish religion. He was, a, he was practicing some aspects of the Jewish religion. Uh, Cornelius was someone we could describe as a, a seeker, perhaps. Uh, but Cornelius was still a Gentile. He wasn't circumcised. And if, if you're not circumcised as a male, you, you cannot be a Jew. It's as simple as that. Cornelius was uncircumcised. Neither, it seems, did Cornelius follow the Jewish food laws, you know, all the dietary restrictions. You, know, you have to give up eating tasu. So Cornelius didn't give up eating pork, you know, probably. He didn't follow the, the Jewish food laws. All this meant that as, as religious and as devout as Cornelius was, Cornelius was still regarded as unclean. The Jews, you know, they, they liked Cornelius. So they said that he was well regarded by the, the Jewish nation, but still he was inherently unclean in the eyes of the Jew. He was still a Gentile. But God, as we, as we read in this story, God shows favor to Cornelius. It's somewhat surprising. He sends an angel to appear to him in the vision, and the angel's first word, the angel's first word to Cornelius, his name. You know, we shouldn't kind of just gloss over that. It's a, it's a really important fact that the very first word is his name. Hey, Cornelius. Imagine the situation. You know, PM Lee is in your constituency and he does a walkabout. He goes to your door, knocks on the door. You know, he kind of sees you. He, say, he asks, oh, what's your name? He says, oh, I'm, I'm so-and-so. And then, oh, okay, nice to meet you, so-and-so. And then you know, he leaves to continue on his walkabout. Imagine you, you meet PM Lee again, say, months after that. And then he sees you and says, hey, I remember you. You're so-and-so, right? You know, I think if you were in that situation, you'd be pretty impressed. Like, wow, you know, he, he actually remembered my name. That, that's, that's something. Someone as important as that remembers me. But this story, God, the creator of the entire universe, comes to this Roman centurion, you know, he's Roman, he's Gentile, and calls him by name. The creator of the entire universe knows you. He knows me. He knows us by name. He's awesome in his majesty but also very personal, very near to us. You know, think about it. As, as you come before God, do you realize that you're not just a nameless face in the crowd to Him? As you come before God, He, he knows you. He calls you by name. As Jesus tells us in, in John 10, Jesus says, I know my own. I know my own. The, the good shepherd calls his own sheep by name. You know, some of you might be wondering if God really cares. Sitting here thinking, does God really care? Does God really know? He does. He does. He's personally involved in our lives, sometimes working in dramatic ways, but often working in ways that might be hidden and unseen by us. But He cares. He knows. And He invites us to know Him. 
The angel commands Cornelius to send men to bring Peter from Joppa to Caesarea so that Cornelius can hear the gospel from Peter. No, it's interesting to note that the, the angel actually doesn't share the gospel with Cornelius. Instead, the, the angel says, go and find Peter. You need to hear from Peter. Peter will tell you what you need here. You know, this tells us that God is sovereign. He, he's the one who orchestrates these things, but he also works through people, through people like Peter, in accomplishing his purposes, in, in bringing his message uh, to be known by the nations. So Cornelius, is, Cornelius shows a lot of humility. Cornelius is teachable. He immediately obeys what the angel says in the vision. Once the angel leaves, he calls two of his servants and a soldier and sends three of them to fetch Peter. Now, Peter is in Joppa, and Joppa was about 50 kilometers south of Caesarea, where Cornelius is. So it's like walking from Tuas to Changi. It's actually about the same distance. So imagine walking from Tuas to Changi. I think the, the journey takes them about a day right, to, to cover that distance. So the, 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 the scripture tells us that the next day, after about a day of, of journeying, the next day they approach Joppa. Meanwhile, as these three messengers from Cornelius are getting nearer and nearer to Joppa, what's going on? Peter goes up to the roof to pray. And it's about noon, lunchtime. Now, why does Luke give us all these little details about time? Now, he wants us to see that all these events are not random. All these events, you know, what time the messengers leave, what, what time they get near to Joppa, what time Peter's on the roof, all these events are orchestrated and coordinated by God himself. God's the one kind of, you know, really in control of, of this whole situation, right down to the smallest details. Nothing that we read about here in Acts 10 is happening by chance or coincidence. God is the one who's behind all these things that are happening. It is God's plan that Peter should be praying just at the time when Cornelius' messengers are about to appear at his front door. This is a true divine appointment, if there ever was one. True divine appointment. Now think about your own lives. Pause for a minute and, and think about your own lives. Who has God providentially brought into your lives? Who has God providentially brought into your lives for you to reach out to them, for you to get to know them, for you to perhaps speak a word of encouragement to their lives? Do you notice the people around you? Do you notice who God brings into your life? It's noon. Peter is praying. It's almost time for lunch and he's hungry. Just as he's praying, Peter sees a vision and in the vision, the heavens open. And every time the heavens open in the Bible, it's a sign of divine revelation. You know, God is about to say something. Heavens open, and this massive sheet. You know, some people think it, it could be a, even like a, a sail that, that descends. And it's a massive sheet. And in, in this sheet, what's in the sheet? All kinds of animals, reptiles, and birds. Now, according to Jewish law, some of these animals are clean. Some of these creatures are unclean. It's a mixture of clean and unclean creatures. That makes the next command really shocking. Right? What, what does God say to Peter? Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Eat. Both clean and unclean, don't care, just eat. Right? Just, just kill and eat. I mean, it's a, it's a shocking command to Peter. And Peter, you know, he's hungry, right? So as he hears, kill and eat, you know, he's like, well, you know, I can really relate to that because I'm hungry. But as a good Jew, even though he's really hungry, you know, how can a good Jew eat unclean food? How can a good Jew kill unclean animals? You know, so Peter says, you know, somewhat surprisingly, Peter actually says no to God. You notice that? Peter says no. No, God. You know, Peter says, no, I, I won't eat because I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. God speaks again. And this time, when God speaks again, it's actually a rebuke. What God has made clean, do not call common. It's a rebuke from God. I've made, what I've made clean, do not call 
common. And God doesn't just say it once. How many times does He say it? He says it three times. He says it three times. Peter, of all people, would have been familiar to God saying things three times. So, So what's happening here? God is saying to Peter, hey, listen. Listen, what I'm saying is really, really important. I'm going to say it three times. Listen, sorry, I just thought about alo alo, but sorry. <laughs> so, so God is saying that, you know, just let, let's understand the Old Testament food laws a bit. The Old Testament food laws were meant to teach Israel about holiness. The Old Testament food laws distinguished Israel from the other nations. You know, as God's people, Israel was meant to be holy and separate. And one of the ways... Israel's distinctiveness was shown was in its diet, right? What you eat. So what you eat kind of shows that you are different from the nations. The Gentiles, the surrounding nations around Israel, they ate whatever they wanted. As Singaporeans, I think we can relate to that. The the Gentiles were not a part of God's people. So they ate whatever they wanted and they were inherently unclean. The diet showed that. They had no food restrictions. And then the Jews would, would see themselves as clean partly because they keep to certain food restrictions. It was, a, it was a mark of their separateness from the nations. To avoid being defiled, the, Jew, the Jews would restrict their interactions with Gentiles. They wouldn't even visit a Gentile home because you, you can't uh, be in control of what your Gentile host puts on your table. So, so better to be safe, better not to visit a Gentile home at all because you don't know what they're going to feed you, where it comes from. So don't, don't even visit. You know, in, in, look at verse 28. Peter says to Cornelius, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with anyone or to visit anyone of another nation. It's just not kosher. It's really not kosher. The food laws that distinguish between clean and unclean food mirrored the separation between clean and unclean people. You have clean and unclean food, and that mirrors the separation between clean and unclean people, Jew and Gentile. Now, think about this. This is a really, really serious problem for the, work, for the spread of the gospel. Right? Really serious. Because who are the people of the gospel now? It's the Jews. And if the Jews refuse to associate with the Gentiles, how are the Gentiles going to hear the gospel? They, they can't. Right? It's like saying, I'm a Christian. I don't want to hang out with non-Christians. Right? I'm, I'm happy in my Christian bubble. I just, I just spend time with Christians. We're good friends. You know, I, don't, why, I don't want to defile myself with non-Christians. How are the non-Christians going to hear the gospel? Right? So that, that's, a, that's a major, major problem for the spread of the gospel. How is the gospel going to go to the ends of the earth if the Jews are unwilling to take it to the ends of the earth, if the Jews, in order to be clean, cannot associate with Gentiles, see how, how big a problem this is. So as, as Peter puzzles, you know, he's still on the roof, as he puzzles over the meaning of this vision, the men sent by Cornelius arrive at the gate. Perfect timing. God arranges it, right? God arranged it with perfect timing. The, the men ask for Peter, or at the gate, and just as they're asking for Peter, what happens? God speaks to Peter again. The passage tells us that the Spirit speaks to Peter, and the Spirit tells Peter, go. Go with these men. You know, Peter's wondering, eh, what, what's going on? Now, I see this vision. I, I have no idea what it means. Then there are these three men here. What should I do? God says, go. Go with them. And, and God assures Peter, go with them because I have sent them. They didn't just come on their own, but I have sent them. This tells us that God is the one. Again, he's the one who takes the initiative to bring Peter and Cornelius together. You know, it's not as if Cornelius decides one day that he will find a Jew to tell him the gospel. It's not as if Peter is there thinking, oh, how can I reach the nations? I, I should do something. No, actually both of them are, are kind of not the ones initiating anything. It's God who is bringing them together. God who's kind of moving them out of their homes towards each other. God is sovereign. Sovereign in the work of the gospel. We should be really, really thankful for that. 
God is the one who coordinates and executes His plan to spread His gospel to the nations. When we think about missions, missions is not first and foremost our work. Missions is first and foremost God's idea, God's work, God's plan. It's what He's doing in the world. And He invites us to be a part of that. This God has a heart for the nations. Do we share His heart? This God has a desire for His name to be glorified, not just among the Jews, but among the peoples to the ends of the earth. As Habakkuk tells us, as Esther, waters cover the seas. That's the expanse that we should spread the glory of the name of God. And because of this, we should thank God for how He has graciously brought the gospel to us. You know, we're very far from Jerusalem. If you haven't noticed, we are the ends of the earth. Do you ever just stop and thank God for how the gospel has come to you? Like, you know, me in Singapore, so far removed from Palestine, I'm just amazed that I'm a Christian. I'm just amazed that I believe in Jesus and I follow Israel's Messiah. Right? Thank God for how the gospel has come to you. And then that, that should encourage us to share the gospel. And to know that we don't do it alone, but God is constantly at work and He is the one who is in control. And we have the wonderful privilege of being His co-workers. God invites us to be His co-workers bring His gospel into people's lives. We should pray. If, if God is the one in, who is in control, if He's the one working, then we need His help. We don't do it alone. We need to pray and ask God to help us to notice the people that He's bringing into our lives, to, to pray for faithfulness, to speak the truth into the lives of these people that God is bringing into our lives, and to pray for God to work in these people around us, that they would come to know Jesus as well. God tells Peter to go without hesitation, which that phrase there, without hesitation, is, is probably better translated without making any distinctions. Peter is to go without making any distinctions. What does that mean? As a good Jew, Peter was well-trained to make distinctions. He was accustomed to distinguish himself as a clean Jew from unclean Gentiles. But God had other plans. The gospel is to go out to the nations, then, then God himself removes the division between clean and unclean people, between Jew and Gentile. And therefore, he tells Peter, I've made, you know, the, the people who I've, of whom I've made clean, don't, don't count them as unclean. Go and work with them, for them. The division between Jew and Gentile will be removed and, and Peter is to go and speak the gospel to Cornelius. And Peter obeys God. He, he leaves the next day to meet Cornelius in Caesarea. Now, we live in a very divided world. We live in a world where people make distinctions all the time. Maybe we make distinctions as well. You know, how, do we, how do we make distinctions? We make distinctions over race, over age, over family background, language, culture, nationality. And every time you get on the MRT, especially on Sundays, and your MRT happens to pass by Little India, you make distinctions. You make distinctions over class, over wealth. You make distinctions over a person's job, over someone's educational level. How do we make distinctions? For example, do we avoid sharing the gospel with some people because they are different from us? Do, do we avoid sharing the gospel with some people because we think that they are just beyond the reach of God's mercy? Do we avoid kind of interacting with some people because we think their lives are just too messy? Just too kind of, uh, bit inconvenient. We don't even want to get our hands dirty. How do we make distinctions? Do we make distinctions in the church? How, how do, we, do 
Could we divide along these lines in the church as well? Think honestly. You know, consider this honestly. Who do you spend most of your time with in the church? Is it with people who are most like you? Whether age or background and so on and so forth. You know, do, we, do we make distinctions when we just stick with the people that we are most familiar with? That we're most comfortable with? Do we make distinctions in that way? You know, how are we getting to know those who are not like us? Even in the body of Christ. Are we willing to kind of not make distinctions? And to really get to know one another, family should. Another question for us to think about. How is God calling you to make Jesus known? How is God calling you to make Jesus known? You know, this, this call to make Jesus known, is, it's not necessarily a call to uh, full-time gospel work. You know, for some of us it may be, and for some of us, God is calling you to full-time gospel work. If you feel that He is, Come, come talk to the elders first before you make any drastic life plans. Come, come talk to us. We'd love to talk to you more about what it means to kind of follow Jesus and, and do gospel work full-time. But, but for, for most of us, perhaps, the, the call is not to full-time gospel work. The call is, how can we, where we are right here, right now, how can we be faithful with the gospel? Think about the people around you, right? your family, your friends, your co-workers, how are you helping them to know and follow Jesus? Are you helping your family members know and follow Jesus? If you're a parent, are you helping your, your, your kids know and follow Jesus? If your parents, are, if your parents don't know Jesus, how, how are you helping them know and follow Jesus? Your, your people in your CG, how are you helping them to follow Jesus? The people at your workplace, people in your school, you know, just, just look around you. There are plenty of relationships that you already have. You, you, you obey God's call to make Jesus known by, by being faithful with all these relationships that God has entrusted to you. Relationships in your home, relationships at work, relationships in your school, relationships at church. How is God calling you to make Jesus known in all these relationships? Do we also realize that the nations have come here Singapore. You know, there are many, many people groups right here on our doorstep. You see them when you take the MRT. You see them perhaps in your workplace. You see them in your schools. Some of them work in your homes. We realize that the nations have come here and, and that missions doesn't have to mean going overseas. Because the nations have come here, there are plenty of opportunities to befriend internationals to, to share the gospel with them. How are we being faithful with all these relationships that God is really thrusting on our doorstep? For example, I know of a Christian couple who, opened, who actually opened up their home to provide temporary emergency housing for foreign domestic workers in need. So, so they always keep a bedroom in their home free so that any foreign domestic worker who has an emergency need can, can go to them and, and spend uh, some, some time just staying with them. I mean, that, that's, that's a really wonderful way of serving the nations who have come here. Uh, we have so many opportunities in Singapore. It doesn't, you know, missions doesn't even need taking a plane. They've all come here. How are we using our lives and, and putting our lives into the work of what God is doing in the world, making the gospel known? So that's our first point, two visions given by God. Second point, one message about the God who saves. So far, we've seen how God has given two visions that lead to two obedient responses from Cornelius and Peter. God orchestrates a meeting between them, and it's remarkable that Peter, a Jew, should visit a Gentile home. And Cornelius is eager to hear the gospel from Peter. You know, he calls, he's called together his family and close friends, so that they can hear as well. You know, it says in verse 33, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. God is present when His Word is proclaimed. He is with us when we tell others about Jesus. Peter's message makes four key points. 
The first point, Peter says, God shows no partiality. Peter is saying God makes no distinctions. God makes no distinctions. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't, God doesn't distinguish between people based on things like their ethnicity, their nationality, their wealth, their education, their social, their social economic status. God makes no distinctions. Peter says that God saves anyone. God saves anyone who repents and believes in Jesus. Peter says the gospel is for everyone. The gospel is for everyone. It's a very inclusive message. Why? Because Jesus is Lord of all. There's one Lord over all. And because there's one Lord over all, all need to hear this same message about the God who saves. This this Lord of all, He's Lord of every tongue, every tribe, every people, every nation. Therefore, He's the only Savior for the world. There's no one else. And God's will has always been to bless the nations of the world through Jesus Christ the promised seed of Abraham. If you remember Genesis 20, sorry, Genesis 22, God promised Abraham in Genesis 22, in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Who's Abraham's offspring? Galatians tells us that there's one offspring, one seed, that's Christ. All the families of the earth are to be blessed through that one descendant from Abraham. So the plan to take the gospel to the ends of the earth is, is not a New Testament innovation. Missions is not a New Testament idea. You know, I know that oftentimes when we talk about missions, we just turn back to Matthew 28, but that's not where missions begins. Missions begins as early as Genesis, where, where God's intent has always been to bless the nations through Abraham's offspring, Jesus. Now, the prophet Isaiah speaks of Jesus in this way says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you, speaking of Jesus, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Isaiah, speaking of Jesus. Peter didn't realize this at first, but God spoke to him in a vision and through his spirit. You know this, and, and when Peter realized what God is doing in the world, what happens to Peter? Changes. Now, the nice thing about this story is that you, you kind of see Peter's change of attitude through the story. You know, this, this story is not just about Cornelius' conversion. You know, some, some commentators say that this story is actually about Peter's conversion in some ways. It's his change of heart towards the nations. That I shouldn't call them unclean because they need to hear the gospel of Jesus too. And they can be cleansed through the gospel of Jesus just as I have been cleansed through Christ. Peter is transformed through this story. And when we join with God on his mission, he changes us as well. The work of missions doesn't leave us unchanged, but the work of missions reshapes our hearts fills us with love, with grace, and compassion for the nation. That's what it means to worship a God who is a missionary. That's the first point that Peter makes. God makes, God makes no dis- distinctions. He shows no partiality. The, the second point of Peter's message is that Jesus is the Christ, God's chosen king. Peter tells us that the Holy Spirit came on Jesus at his baptism and this anointing of the Spirit from God empowered Jesus for his ministry. And Jesus then went about doing good, healing all who were oppressed by the devil, demonstrating that God's kingdom had come because the king had come. And this Jesus is God's king who brings salvation to the Jews and also to the Gentiles. The second point of Peter's sermon. The third point is that Jesus died and was raised and he will return judge. Now, how does Jesus save? Peter says Jesus was put to death by hanging on a tree. Now, that's an interesting way to describe it, hanging on a tree. Why does he say that? Peter is alluding to a passage in Deuteronomy 
Deuteronomy 21 that says, a hanged man is cursed by God. Anyone who hangs on a tree, cursed by God. So Peter is saying, Jesus, because he, was, he died by hanging on the tree, Jesus is accursed. That, that's the gospel. Jesus is accursed. We have all sinned against God. We've all turned away from Him. You know, He made us, He created us to worship Him, to know Him, to love Him. But every single one of us has unilaterally decided not to worship Him. That's sin. And, and because we've turned away from God in that way, we deserve God's judgment. We, we deserve God's curse. You know, the, the law in the Old Testament talks about curses on those who disobey. We deserve God's curse. So we, we deserve to be hanged on a tree, so to speak. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus is accursed for sinners like us. He took God's curse in our place. We trust in Him. And if we believe in Him, He wins God's blessing for us. You know, he, he, we, we trade our curses for His blessing. I mean, that, that's the good news of the gospel. Jesus defeated sin and death for us. And we know this because God raised him from the dead on the third day. That's what Peter says in his sermon. And more than that, God chose witnesses, people like Peter, to testify to Jesus' resurrection and that this Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead. He is the only saviour for sinners like us. He is the one who took our curse. We trust in him so that he can give the full blessing of God to us. Finally, the fourth point of Peter's sermon. Peter says, our sins are forgiven when we believe in Jesus. Sins are forgiven when we believe in Jesus. So far, Peter has told us about who Jesus is and what he came to do. And this is the core message of the gospel, right? Who Jesus is, what he came to do. And we must get this right if we are to faithfully share the gospel. But the gospel isn't just information. The gospel isn't just nice-sounding things about who Jesus is and what he came to do. The gospel is good news that we must respond to. And how should we respond? Peter tells us in verse 43, everyone who believes in him, everyone, regardless of whether you're Jew or Gentile, rich or poor, male or female, slave or free, highly educated, no education, doesn't matter. Everyone Everyone, we all come on the same terms. Everyone believes in Jesus, receives forgiveness of sins. Amazing news, right? Regardless of your background, regardless of who you are, Jesus receives you. Believe in Him. And because He receives us on these terms, we can receive one another too without making distinctions. To believe in Jesus means to believe what the Bible says about Him. To believe in Jesus means to trust Him that He is your only Lord, the only one that you are following, and your only Savior. To believe in Jesus means to believe that He is the only one who can rescue you from your sins. Not anyone else, not yourself, not your good works, not your upstanding character or your high moral values. No, He is the only one can rescue you from your sins. The question for us is, have we believed in Jesus? Have we really believed in Jesus that He is our Lord and Savior? Finally, after Peter's message, come to our third point. One people created by God. What happens next has been described as the Gentile version of Pentecost. Right? In, in Acts 2, you have the Jewish Pentecost, when the Spirit is poured out on mostly Jews, here you have the Spirit being poured out on Gentiles, Gentile Pentecost. While Peter is still speaking, God pours out his Spirit on Cornelius, his family, and his friends. And they start speaking in tongues. 
Now, it was probably in a language understandable by the... There were Jewish believers present because they accompanied Peter to go to Cornelius' house. So this, this language was probably understandable by the Jewish believers present because they heard them praising God. And, and here, sp- speaking in tongues was the outward sign that the Gentiles had received the Spirit. You know, in other places in Acts, the gift of the Spirit isn't always accompanied by speaking in tongues. So, so this tells us that tongue speaking is not expected of every believer. But here in particular, it's a sign that the Gentiles have received the Spirit. And what is true for every believer is that all of us, if we are in Christ, if we believed in Jesus, all of us have the Spirit. When we believe in Jesus, we are baptized with the Spirit. The Spirit is God's gift to His people. You, you can't believe in Jesus and not have the Spirit. You know, like what Paul says, if, you know, if any man does not have the Spirit, he does not belong to Christ. Now, having received Christ and the Spirit, Cornelius, his family and friends are then baptized. You know, Peter says, Peter asks, you know, what's keeping these men from being baptized? Right? They've received the Spirit. They should be baptized. So water baptism is connected with spirit baptism. Water baptism is connected with what? Conversion, being a Christian. And this is the reason why we baptize only those who have believed in Jesus. Because water baptism has to be connected. It's connected to spirit baptism. Book of Acts. We baptize only those who have believed in Jesus. We baptize only those who have been born again by God's spirit, who have been converted Christ. The Jewish believers, you know, there are people from the circumcision here, and they're amazed at, what ha- at what's happened. You know, they're, they're amazed that the Gentiles have also received the Spirit. Why? Because in the Old Testament, God promises that He will give His Spirit on His people. So by, by pouring the Spirit out on the Gentiles, what's God saying? God is saying the Gentiles are now my people as well, just like you. Jews. So the Jewish believers, they, they can't believe it. It's like, wow. You know, we, we've got the Spirit and now these Gentiles have the Spirit as well. So that means that we are one with them. Together we are one people. We're not two people. We're one people of God. God, God is making the Gentiles His people of equal standing. Now, it's very important to note, they, are equal, they have equal standing with the Jews. They're not second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. You know, God has made the Gentiles clean by His Spirit, not through circumcision, but by Spirit. The Gentiles don't have to be circumcised to become Jews first. The Gentiles don't have to keep the food laws in order to be clean and Jews first. God's made them clean by His Spirit. God is creating one new people, uniting both Jews and Gentiles together through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And because there's one spirit, there is also one body, one body of Christ. As Ephesians 4 says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now, just, just a pastoral comment here. This is why unity matters so much among the people of God. Because our, our unity says a lot about God himself. Now, our, our unity as God's people says that we have one spirit. Our disunity says that there's more than one spirit. Our, our disunity says that we actually follow different gods. Or, you know, that this, we're, not quite, we're not quite under the same father. Don't really, we don't really follow the same Lord. Our, our, our unity says a lot about who God is. That, that's why God cares so much about the unity of the church. It's not just a social thing. that oh, It's good to get along, so we should be united. No, it goes beyond a social thing. Our, our unity says a lot about the God whom we worship. Our, our unity really is a form of witness, the kind of God that we follow. Cornelius' story is our story as well. As I said earlier, this is not far removed from us because we, like Cornelius, are Gentiles as well. At least most of us are. I haven't met any Jews here among us, but 
most, I trust most, if not all of us, are Gentiles. So this is our story. And as we read Acts 10, we praise God that His gospel has spread to the ends of the earth. His gospel has come to us. And do we praise God that He has opened the way for, the, for Gentiles like us to be a part of His people? Are we thankful that we are part of God's people? Are we thankful that we are the church of the living God, the body of Christ, the, the, the temple of the Holy Spirit? God has made us one in Christ. The Spirit has created the unity that we enjoy. We didn't do anything. Now, unity is outside our pay grade. So we, we don't have the means to create unity. We don't. Because it's a spiritual unity that God creates by His Spirit through the Gospel. Our job is not to create unity. Our job is to maintain, to preserve, to protect, to defend the, the unity that has been won for us Part one for us through the blood of Christ himself. That's our job. So we need to ask ourselves, how are we cherishing and protecting the unity that God has created by his Spirit? How, how are we, how am I, cherishing and protecting, preserving the unity that God has created by his Spirit? It's a personal question that you need to answer, right? How are your relationships with one another? Be honest. You don't have to raise your hand, right? But think about it where you ask. Really, how, how are our relationships with one another? So this is a serious, serious question because how the health of our relationships with one another impacts directly our unity as the people of God. And our unity as the people of God says a lot about the God whom we worship. Our witness as the people of God depends on our relationships with one another. How are our relationships with one another? Have you been offended by someone? Has someone offended you? Are there relationships that need to be put right in the body of Christ, the family of God? God has created one people, united in Christ, but multi-ethnic, multicultural, diverse. You know, how can we as a church better express this unity in diversity? How, how can we take steps together as a church to, to, to kind of love one another, even people who are different from us? You know, maybe it starts in our CGs. You know, how, how can we make our CGs more diverse, where different people from different walks of life, different ages, different seasons of life are coming together and doing community, doing life together? You know, how, how can we kind of open our CGs to one another even more? How can we maybe be willing to join a CG with people who are not like us, where we express our unity, not in uniformity, but our unity in diversity, because it's the kind of church that God has created by His Spirit. What in the world is God doing? He's gathering to Himself one people from the nations through the gospel of His Son, by the power of His Spirit. You know, if you ever wonder what the will of God is, that's the will of God. That's the will of God. To gather one people to Himself from the nations through the gospel of His Son, by the power of His Spirit. That's God's will. How, how then does your life kind of make sense in light of God's will? God calls us to be His co-workers in this great grand plan for all of creation. You know, is there anything else grander, greater, or more glorious that's worth giving your life to? Is there anything else that's more glorious than this that's really worth giving your life to? You know, this sounds like a huge task, right? You know, I painted a very big picture of what God is doing. You might be wondering, okay, then what next? If I quit my job, should I become a full-time missionary? What next? No, you don't have to quit your jobs. You know, it doesn't mean being a full-time missionary. Here's some, I want to close with just some practical things for us to think about. Where do we begin as we think about this grand plan of what God is doing in the world? Trust in God. 
Trust in the power of His gospel. Trust in the power of His spirit that is at work all the time around us in this world. Be faithful. You know, look, look around you. Look at all the relationships that God has entrusted to you in your life right now. All the people that you know. Are you faithful with them? Are you faithful with them? As a parent, as a child, student, worker, etc. Are, are we faithful with the people whom God has brought into our lives? Are we available to be used by God in all these different relationships? Are we available and willing to go out of ourselves and to tell these people about Jesus? To, to, to get to know them better, to, to move towards them, take the initiative to move towards them and to ask them, how can I pray for you? How can I help you to know Jesus better? How can I help you to follow Jesus better? Are we teachable ourselves? Have we ourselves humbly received God's word? Has, has God's truth convicted us and moved us towards Him, towards Christ, towards the work of Christ in the world? Are we humble and teachable like Cornelius was? Now, these are some practical questions that I want to end with. Think about how we come alongside our great God and partner with Him as He does His amazing work. Well, Pray together. Gracious Father, we praise you. You are a missionary God. You are the one who has called the nations to yourself, through your Son, by the power of your Spirit. And Father, we pray that you would involve us in this great work that you're doing. Help us to look around. Help us to look around our relationships to see who we can be faithful with, with the gospel. And help us to move towards someone else, even today, even after the service. Help us to move towards one another in love, speaking your truth in love, to build one another up in unity towards Christ. Father, help us to be your witnesses in this world. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.